FYI, this podcast contains spoilers. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 452 of the podcast, The Ghost Nicked. It's Nicked, I'm your host, Jason, and we're going to play some catch-up. Catch up on some Wolverine comics and appearances from the last few weeks. And yeah, that will include some zombies and some pirates and some ninjas and some kung fu and all kinds of crazy stuff. Because there's just... There's, a lot of different things in these issues here today or tonight whenever you're listening. Um, so that's what we're going to do. But before we jump into the most current issue of the Wolverine solo series, we do have a little bit of catch up to do with um, Children of the Atom, which is on its final issue, but is also tied into the Hellfire Gala event that has come and gone. And I think there's several. It looks like there's a lot that went on kind of behind the scenes on this book that led to it getting kind of a little off schedule um, and then also, you know, ending a little early. And we'll talk about that as we kind of run through it. Um, Now, I know for sure that it kind of had to change course a few times because of different things going on with the X line. Um, That's why it was significantly delayed on its launch and definitely looked like some of the art changes and stuff, um, creative changes, you know, playing a hand and kind of, and they weren't bad. I mean, Bernard Chang was a great launch to the book, and then Paco Medina has been fantastic on this, this series. So, I mean, nothing to complain about, but I mean, there's definitely some things that probably happened in the X offices, and I haven't done a full run of research onto all the things I know, Vita, and they, um, tweeted maybe a little bit of it just kind of some some background on it and when they confirmed that this was the last issue and i, I don't really want to get into all of that i mean it's not necessarily wolverine centric i think it'll probably be interesting i'll probably look at it at some point but um i have been enjoying the book the book you know started off with some promise and then kind of got a little weighed down by maybe some of its own exposition but then really the last couple of issues really grew on me, like, really strongly. Like, it, this kind of came to a really strong finish, so let's see how it does, how it ends. So, Children of the Atom, number six, is Hellfire Gala, or Party of One, written by Vida Ayala, penciled by Paco Medina, inked by Medina and Walden Wong, colors by David Curiel, Letters by VCs Travis Lanham, designed by Tom Mueller, and the cover by R.B. Silva and Eric Arseniega. And the cover is pretty fantastic. It's like in a park, and there's like a Kakroa gate in the foreground. And we have Gimmick, or Carmen, and kind of standing, approaching the gate, and then her teammates behind her, and then there is raining. It's a really nice cover, really nice composition. The color work is really sets the scene for like kind of the somber mood of it but also still providing clarity to the image it's i i think it's a nice cover army silva is a fantastic artist some of his his covers on this book have been a little more standard right um just kind of here's some team shots or an action shot but this one really really has an evocative emotional response that i think really works well with the title so um 
Won't go super deep into this one. Uh, Wolverine is in it when we get to the gala. There's a scene, and I actually appreciate it because he's standing with his X-Force teammate Domino, which we've seen in some of the, the gala issues that we reviewed. And also, he's ta standing talking with Laura, which is, is awesome. The two Wolverines together because the gala itself, the other issues didn't have a lot of them. I know, you know, at one point Laura was running around looking for Gabby, so of course she ran into Logan. But, you know, if, if there's anything that I've missed from the most recent slew of X-Books, and, and I've been, obviously, if you listen to the show, I've been really enjoying them for the most part. And um, I love that Laura is on the main X-Men team as Wolverine. And I've been enjoying, for the most part, what Percy has been doing in Wolverine. And, you know, and not quite as much, but still mostly enjoying uh, what he's done in X-Force. So there's been plenty of good Wolverine going around. And there's been a few scenes they've interacted, right? There was the one where they were all running through the woods together with Omega Red. And that was more Dawkins and Gabby. And then there was, of course, the, the great panel in, in the previous volume of X-Men where Logan confirmed that Laura is the Wolverine, right? And they're both Wolverine and, you know, kind of put some other X-Men in their place for doubting that, um, which was great. A great scene that showed their bond, but their relationship is super important to me. Always has been. Um, and so, with, you know, there's a time where they were not able to be together, like Wolverine's death, and, you know, some time where Laura was off doing some other stuff, but, you know, on Krakoa, I... If there's anything I miss, it's them being a little more involved. I don't want them to be tied to the hip. Don't get me wrong. That's not what I'm asking for. I don't want them to be necessarily even the same book or on the same teams. I would just like a little more of that interaction. And, and Dawkins as well. I'm sure he and Logan have a very complicated relationship based on all the times they've tried to kill each other. And, and also, we haven't seen a whole lot of Logan with Gabby. I mean, we've seen a little bit. Right? Anyway, those are just some things I'd like to see maybe explored in some of the dynamics of those different relationships. And recently in New Mutants, we saw Gabby kind of with her inhibitions drawn because someone else was possessing her body um, kind of address the relationship with her and Dawkins. That was great. Um, and I, I don't know, I'm trying to see more of the Wolverine family and kind of their inter-dynamics. But anyway, that's not really the focus of this book at all. It's just actually a background panel with no dialogue. So, so I was kind of skipped that, but I just enjoyed seeing it. I enjoyed seeing them, them together, having fun at the gala. And so basically, where we learned at the end of issue 5 is that the Children of the Atom, who are a team of non-mutants who found some sci-fi tech that uh, simulate mutant powers and kind of became like... I want to say like a poser X-Men team. That sounds really negative. Um, an homage, a tribute X-Men team, right? And, but it turns out that Carmen, Gimmick, who has been simulating Gambit's powers, actually is a mutant. And so Storm comes to invite her to the Hellfire Gala. And this leads, obviously, to a lot of strife on the team. Uh, Buddy, Cyclops, Lass is particularly angry, feels like, she feels betrayed, like Karma's been hiding something from her. Karma's like, well, I, I've only known for a little bit. It's not, it's not quite as innocent as, well, I didn't know until Storm told me, which is one way the book could have gone. But to add a little more drama, and I think, you know, for some good storytelling, uh, Vita decided to 
say that, that Carmen found out recently. So she didn't know maybe at the onset of the team, but has found out, you know, through these issues or, or between the discovery of their their tech and their powers in the first issue, which there, you know, seems to be a little gap there. Um, so it could have been some time in that. But anyway, uh, so Buddy, you know, questions her loyalty, her honesty, her integrity, uh, her sincerity for what the team is trying to do. And of course, Carmen is offended and, and has her feelings hurt and says, you know, I've been as dedicated and devoted to this endeavor as anyone else. It doesn't matter that I'm a mutant or not. And, you know, maybe this is why I didn't want to tell you. And they fight and she leaves very upset. And, you know, kind of with the question of is she still welcome on this team hanging in the air? And does she even want to be, you know, with with Buddy hanging in the air? Of course, we know from previous issues that she has a crush on Buddy. So there's that playing as well, which probably only adds to her fight or flight in response. I mean, she's definitely probably really hurt and a little angry in that hurt, and which is, you know, justified. And, well, we'll, we'll get to some more, right? So anyway, she makes a really cool dress. She looks great. Um, and hands off to Paco Medina for just making Carmen really look fantastic as she dolls up for the gala. And she goes through the gate and meets Storm. And Storm, you know, promises to take her around for as long as she can, kind of as her personal guest. And, you know, but, you know, at some point, we know she's going to have to go do the Mars thing. So there will be, she does have some duty uh, related to the gala. But uh, her and Carmen kind of walk around, and we find out that her actual mutant power has nothing to do with copying Gambit, but she is a metamorph. And of course, Mystique's like, I'm not going to train you. If you want to learn how to really use your powers, come find me. And Storm's like, eh. Because <laughs> we know, actually, I probably won't. I don't know what is going to happen to these characters after this book. It would maybe be cool if she somehow got... I don't know, like, maybe, I don't want her to be a bad guy, well, okay, bad guy's not the right word, because the antagonist, as Mystique, I feel I'm kind of on Mystique's side, as far as her anger at Krakoa, so, well, I don't necessarily want her to, to destroy it, I do definitely understand and agree with why she's very mad about Destiny. Anyway, what I was going with that is it might be kind of cool if she kind of did fall under Mystique's wing, and actually had a part to play Inferno, so that her art can kind of continue past this series. We'll see. I also, it's weird, I know it's kind of hypocritical, because I'm always like, well, don't just put people with the same powers together. That's dumb. But at the same time, just because we have this invitation here, it might be cool to see if she follows up on it at some point, in one, in some book, some way. Um, so anyway, and then she meets uh, the Hell's Bells, who remember the children of the Adam Fought, and they try to intimidate her. But then uh, Danny Moonstar comes along and is like, hey, she's with me. Y'all got a problem? And all the Hell's Bells are like, no. And they walk off. Um, then there's some weird scene that I don't necessarily understand with Captain America and Captain Marvel and a very stern, arms-folded Iron Man. Like, hey, is that Danny? How come she's not talking to us? Which I don't... I don't really know what story I'm forgetting where they were like super close. But um, anyway, and then Ivoy spends some time walking her around and she meets some other mutants. She meets Dazzler and um, Jumbo who loves her costume or uh, 
her formal wear and says, hey, you got to come. We got to work together, which is cool. And then she kind of goes out on a bench by by a cliff and remembers the origins of them finding all the tech and stuff in her team. And then we go to the next morning and she's at home and she's going to come out to her family. And this is kind of a, a interesting scene of like meaning or, or issues within issues, right? Because she kind of says, you know, she has something she wants to tell her parents and her parents are like, okay, well, sit down, let's talk. And she starts to talk about, you know, being true to herself and her parents are like, oh, we know, you're a lesbian. We, we, we know. And she's like, how do you know? We just know. You're our daughter. We know you. And they talk about, they just kind of run, not rampant, but they just kind of start talking among themselves and they kind of pick at each other, um, you know, about what this means and whatnot. And they're, they're not unsupportive in any way. In fact, they're actually fairly supportive. But then Carmen has kind of these memories of her parents being worried about uh, Xavier and his politics and Krakoa and kind of the separatism there. And so she gets really sullen, and, but then also kind of gets mad. It's like, you guys aren't listening to me. This isn't really actually what I wanted to tell you. What I want to tell you is I'm a mutant. And it's a really cool scene of her kind of crying and her twin siblings, uh, brother and sister, hugging her because they come to the table as well and just kind of being supportive. And that's all really cool. And then her dad kind of does it about face because... He doesn't backtrack on what he says. He says, I do have worries about what Xavier, like Xavier's philosophy, how he's doing this. That doesn't mean I don't like mutants. It's really kind of a complex way to address the situation, right? Because the, with the allegory you know, of mutants as representing marginalized people, you know, we often just kind of have taking the bigotry head on, which is, I think, super important, right? Like, that needs to happen in the X-Books. It's a, it's a big part of the allegory and the symbolism. But here, we have the dad not being opposed to... And there's no... There doesn't seem... And I'm taking it at face value, and it's, it's written pretty well. So I think Vita definitely has something they're saying here. But it's not that he's a bigot. He just has some concerns about the politics of all, it all. And, and he has concerns about losing his daughter, right? Like, are you going to go to Krakoa and leave us? Like, you're still part of our family. We love you. And we love you no matter what. As a mutant, as, you know, gay, lesbian, like, we love you no matter what. It's really cool. And it's, it's interesting because usually, I won't say usually, uh, and a fair amount of time when there's situations like this or scenes like this in comics or, or media in general, you have... It's kind of, it kind of goes two ways, right? You have the conflict of someone coming out as something different than their family, right? Whether in this case it's a mutant or whether it's a different sexual orientation or, or transgender or whatever that tough conversation may be. So the so and oftentimes, as in real life, in entertainment, you have the conflict of it, right? Where the person that is receiving the news reacts badly and poorly, and either either out of a moment of of just unclarity, like maybe it's not that they're a bad person, they just react badly, or if they're just truly just a heinous bigot and really feel the way that they say. Um, you know, that's definitely one way to go. The other way you often see is that the person who is coming out is really, really worried, and we have the drama of their perspective of just like, 
I'm scared. I don't know what's going to happen when I reveal myself and share this news. But then you have the, the person who receives the news, either a parent, friend, sibling, whatever, um, is super supportive. And so you're like, oh, whew, dodged a bullet. Like, we were worried about conflict, but we didn't get it. And it's not, I won't, I won't say it never happens, but it's not as common in entertainment, and I, w- I would like to think it's fairly common in real life. I've, you know, I personally have not gone through a situation necessarily like this, um, though I have known people that have, and, and definitely sympathetic, and, and try to be supportive. But, um, you know, here, there's, there's they, Vita manages a way to keep the drama intact without having necessarily the conversation swing on either of those. So it's very it's actually a very complex scene, I feel like. And and by the way, it's drawn very well. Because there's a lot of words and this could have just been exposition, good conversation, but the art is equally as empowering. Uh, I know Georgie from Scalbro sometimes likes likes to pick spots where he maybe thinks that backgrounds are too sparse. I I feel like uh, Medina here actually really picks emotionally when there should be background and when there shouldn't, and I think it works really well. But anyway, I just really enjoy the complexity of this conversation that the dad is super supportive but also has concern. And I think that is super realistic, right? Um, and just, I don't know, it just really resonated with me. And, and there's also, you know, the line about how he's scared for his children every day, in which, you know, I, I don't live in fear and I don't endorse anyone taking actions completely out of fear but I mean man as a father and that's so true like just you're constantly like wanting to put your kids in the best position uh, to know that that they're loved and supported and and hope that they get that when they are not around you right like out in the world in school or whatever they're doing like you want to give them enough love and support that they can carry that with them into sometimes hostile environments and and it does make you worry right like it makes you worry like is someone going to mistreat them how will they respond you know have i done enough and instilled enough in them that they can handle the situation and rely on what you know their mom and i have have instilled in them and and wrapped them up in our love and is you know is that enough for all everything they'll encounter and you know it's a constant just kind of I want to say worrying because it's not like a crippling thing. It's just something that's always on your mind or right under the surface, right? Of just wanting the best for them and hoping that you've done right. <laughs> and, and I think part of being a good parent is often feeling like you have not done everything exactly right. And I think that's okay. Um, anyway, I don't. that's not really what I'm trying to talk about right now. But yeah, so just a really touching scene. Um, it's a really, it feels complex and real, and just, I really liked it. And so then, um, we see the children in the Atom fighting the Golden Girls, uh, Hickman's uh, team of, of elderly uh, female botanists, and then, of course, they're attacking a Krakoan garden, trying to get some stuff, because that's what they seem to be trying to do all the time. And the team's not doing great, but then Carmen slash Gimmick shows up, and helps turn the tide and actually not only uses her her gambit simulation powers but uses her metamorphosis powers to impersonate one of them and get the the plant back and turn the tables and they're able to defeat the golden girls and 
Then we see them, you know, later add a costume on a rooftop somewhere, which is kind of odd. Um, when they're up on a rooftop, or maybe it's a terrace, I can't tell. But they're up there, and they're all talking, and everyone's kind of, like, can feel the awkwardness just tangibly in the air, waiting for Buddy and Carmen to talk to each other, and they finally break the silence. And they both apologize for, for maybe overreacting. And then Buddy confesses that, you know what, it's not just that I felt betrayed or felt like you weren't doing right by the team. Like when I, I thought I was losing you and that destroyed me, it made me realize something that I don't just like you, I, I'm in love with you. And of course for Carmen, this is like, oh, well, I, I've been in love with you for a while now, but I thought you loved Gabe, the Archangel guy. And she's like, well, no, I mean, I like him, but it's not the same thing. Like, I literally thought you, I was losing you, and I thought I was losing myself. And I'm sorry I didn't say anything sooner. And it's a really nice scene between them, as they kind of acknowledge their feelings for each other. And even Gabe's like, well, I like you both, but I mean, not really that way. Like, I'm not really dating right now. I'm just trying to figure out how we're doing this team and all that stuff. And that's kind of interesting. And anyway, then we see them later at fireworks at night, and they kind of talk about how Carmen will... You know, go to Koa for like training and stuff, but but still stay a part of her family, which includes the children of the Adam as her extended family. And so that's kind of where we end up, and it kind of ends on a happy note of her going back to Krakoa, but but promising that she's not going to be like separated, and that's kind of where we end. So the only thing, like I thought, it was a very emotional, a very impactful issue. The action was kind of light, but I think intentionally so, and that's fine. Um, the art was great. The storytelling, for the most part, was great. I think the only negative thing I would say, and no no fault to Vita at all, because we know some elements probably had to be compressed to get to some of the finish line of where they wanted to get with the story, and, and maybe less issues than they originally intended. And as you often see with books, they get canceled prematurely or, or have to end before maybe they were, were ready to end. Sometimes that compression leads to some elements feeling a little rushed. I would have preferred to have seen Carmen and Buddy. Like, kind of the drama of her possibly leaving the team and then revealing feelings maybe would have worked better over, like, two issues instead of one. Because there is a lot of... Con I won't say exposition, because that's not right. A lot of conversation jammed into this book. And it's not a bad thing. It's all very well written. But the pacing is definitely kind of like, whoa, <laughs> hold on to your hats. Um, and not in an action way, but just in a like, there's a lot of of emotions to move through and and not a lot of page count. And it's not bad. Like I said, I think under the circumstances with the situation that they found themselves in in this book, Vita handled it really well. And so what, I, what I'm getting at is that I, I think there's maybe some things, some casualties of of scheduling and kind of what happened in this book that keep this issue from being six out of six claws. But I'm still going to give it five out of six claws. Like I still really, really enjoyed it a lot. I just can recognize it's not perfect and don't really think there's anyone to blame for that besides maybe the ex offices in general. <laughs> That's kind of a vague. You're responsible, whoever you are. <laughs> 
But yeah, um, I really enjoyed this series. It really ended strong for me. Um, I hope to see these characters continue to do something. I don't know if it necessarily means that they'll relaunch and then as, as another volume or something later down the line with maybe some more um, set in stone kind of path forward for the book to continue. But I would like to see, especially Carmen, um, now that she's on Krakoa and available in that cast of characters. I don't know if she slides into New Mutants or what, but I mean, I hope I hope this is not the end of all their stories. Whatever that means. But yeah, uh, Children of the Atom, number six, a definite five out of six claws. I mean, I spent way more time in that book than I thought. I really thought I would just kind of blow through it, just hit the highlights, do five minutes, get to Wolverine number 14, and I will now, but but way longer than I thought. <laughs> so, Wolverine number 14, kind of the linchpin of the episode, we would say, is um, Fox Hunt, or The Unusual Suspects, written by Benjamin Percy, art by Adam Kubert, colors by Frank Martin, letters by VCs Corey Pettit, woohoo, designed by Tom Mueller, uh, Kubert and Martin do the cover. This cover is pretty rad. You know, if, New, if the last issue of New Mutants was a was a candidate for a Wolverine Award, I think this one might be too. It's kind of abstract, right? We have like a a foreground, like a horizon, low on the cover, and two shadowy figures. And we have Wolverine's head or part of it, like he, almost like he's biting the horizon, or the water of the horizon is running into his mouth. Then his eyes are glowing, so we have like a big head. And then out of the top of his head, almost being deconstructed, like his his cowl and forehead are falling apart and breaking apart, we have Solemn with some Tron lightning powers. And then the logo... I don't remember the three ever being turned around backwards, but it is in this one. I'm sorry, the three, the E in Wolverine. So the middle E, like ver... <laughs> <laughs> that one, the the E is turned into a three, and I'm not real sure why. Um, and I don't think it's been that way the whole time. Now I want to go check. I don't have one handy, so I will I will make a note to try to follow up on that. Maybe put something on Twitter or whatever. But it's a great cover. It looks fantastic, and the colors are really cool. So we have Wolverine as Logan going to Madripoor. And he's he's looking for the Marauder, which of course showed up burnt out during the gala, um, with Christian Frost's body comatose in the water, and so he goes down below deck to figure out what's going on. And there's some bodies that are kind of burnt and a lot of blood, and he determines through sniffing vodka and other clues <laughs> that they're Russian. And then he sees like blood splatter that has burned through the floor. So he's like, okay, something with acid blood. Is this a mutant? And maybe it is. And so he decides, you know, in Matripoor fashion, to go hunting for information, <laughs> interrogating the lowlifes of Matripoor. And so he goes to some bars, he fights with some guys, he finds a Russian guy. We get an awesome snicked. You know, Kubert, I love the way Kubert continues to try to find new ways to do snicks. Um, so here we have, like, in the background, the criminal cowering, and in the foreground, a silhouette of Wolverine. So, like, like basically from his knee to his waist and his hands at his side. And then one hand, the silhouette of the claws popping out, and a red snick inside the silhouette of the hand. And it looks really great. 
Um, it's fantastic. And then Emma shows up, reads his mind, determines the scene. Some thugs were hired to raid the Marauder. Um, and they get, he gives an address of one of the guys who survived the boat. He was burnt pretty badly. He's, he's in a, not a hospital bed, like he went to like an, a black market doctor and is being kept. And we see a cool thing where Wolverine uses a claw to pick a lock. Um, like in the keyhole and the uh, the person identifies that's him and there's this guy looks like a mummy in a bed he reaches for his gun Wolverine's like no 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 let's just talk if I like what you say there's nothing to be worried about and you know gives him his flask of vodka the guy drinks and you know he doesn't really want to talk so Wolverine would get a snicked and he puts one claw one claw in the guy's nostril and just kind of pulls on it and then we get a nice snack and he's like um, you know if you get me some information I'll give you some ointment from Krakoa it won't make you pretty but it'll keep you alive and let's start with what happened on the boat and the guy's like death and then we see like this giant mountain of a mutant and he has like a spider or bug like painted on his face and he's got like jagged teeth and he's just a giant person and um he went after the Shi'ar diamonds, and he bled acid. And when they shot him, it made him bleed, and so he bled acid. And the guy with his finger draws his face in blood on the headboard. I guess his own blood. And um, so we find out basically that the Arico, you know, they have sovereignty on Mars, but you know, they they were a violent race, <laughs> which still is kind of kind of funny to say that oh this whole race is violent or whatever but um anyway uh so they got some of them were getting bored and this guy was a pirate and he decides hey i'm gonna be a pirate on earth as well so he, he finds what's the best place to be a pirate and it's magic board so he's just kind of running around being a pirate and so wolverine is able to uh track him down and he goes to like this busted up bay of fog outside of Madripoor. Like all these like busted up ships and stuff. And there's some pirates and they're all doing pirate stuff. Yo ho, yo ho. And then we see like a duel. Like uh, almost like Lansing from the Middle Ages. And there's these, these this guy on a skiff. Um, I don't remember if they say his name. I mean they do. Blackmore. Blackmore the... Arakoan pirate and he is fighting they're dueling on his on these skiffs in the cove and there's sharks and stuff and he beheads them and Wolverine jumps on a sea dew a pirate sea dew because he has a monster skull on the handlebars and he, he pops his claws and get a snicked he jumps and he attacks Blackmore they fall in the water um, a shark bites him Blackmore that is and then a shark swallows Wolverine so the one that bites Blackmore releases acid blood and, and is not happy with the indigestion it gets. The other one gets a different kind of indigestion as Wolverine in classic fashion. Cuts his way out of the belly of the shark. And they come up and agree that they're both tough sons of bitches. And so they go to uh, Blackmore's pirate ship and drink. And basically Wolverine's kind of saying that, you know, we gave y'all a planet. I'm not going to tell you not to pirate stuff. 
here, which is an interesting take, and one that, I don't know, I, I try, I kind of go back and forth, because Wolverine, since the Dawn of X stuff, has been, really since Hotchbox, 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 whatever I'm trying to say here, um, ever since then, has been a little less concerned with helping humanity and more with helping Krakoa, which is okay, but I don't know. Wolverine's always been yeah, sure, he's violent, anti-hero, whatever, but he's always been out against kind of helping everyone he can, I guess. I don't know. But anyway, he basically tells Blackmore, if you want to be a pirate, if you want to be a Madripoor, that's fine. Pirate away. Loot yourself silly. But do not under any circumstance, pirate other mutants, and especially not official Krakoa mutants. And Blackmore kind of laughs it off and says, you know what? You can't do anything about it, right? And um, he takes off his mask and says, I lost my nose, and I'm not doing this just for me. I'm doing it for Solemn. And that's where it ends. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's that. <laughs> it's like... It's not even really a done 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 moment. It's almost so fast, like you don't even really have time to realize what just happened. But yeah, he's like, I'm not, pi- I am pirating because I like to pirate, but also I've got you know, someone someone's backing me up, telling me what to do, bossing me around, and that's solemn. And he didn't make sure I did it. He took my nose, and um, <laughs> not like, ooh, I got your nose, like you do with your kid. Like he actually cut his nose off. Um, he really got it. Really got his nose. Um, yeah. So, um, I gotta say, man, I've missed Adam Kubert on this book so much. <laughs> it, it really makes a huge difference having him. Um, also, you know, if the vampire story was getting kind of tired, this this feels good. I'm glad that Solomon's coming back. We knew he was going to at some point. I'm interested to see what happens there. And then, you know, having the idea of, of the of Blackmore kind of being like, you know what? Yes, and Ten of Swords, y'all saved us. You reunited us, and then in Planet Side, you gave us our own planet, Mars. That's great. But on Arco, I was a pirate, and I kind of still just want to be a pirate, right? Like, I'm glad you, you set all this stuff up for us, but that doesn't solve, that doesn't scratch my pirating itch, and it's itchy. And I gotta scratch it. So I'm gonna be a pirate. And here's this great pirate place on your planet. And so I'm gonna do it. And the idea that Wolverine's like, go for it. Just don't pirate mutant stuff. <laughs> it's an interesting kind of take and an interesting resolution. And then of course, you know, all that leading towards Solemn. You know, I'll be interested to see what Solemn's motives are. I mean, I'm glad it's interesting to kind of have him as like a secret shadowy figure behind the pirates, but there's no real reason. I just hope there's a good reason, I guess, that he's particularly interested in the pirating himself, or if he's just causing trouble and sowing chaos, which could be fine, depending on how it plays out. But, um, anyway, I thought the story was an improvement over the last arc. Like, it's just a more interesting story. And then having Hubert's art back makes a heck of a difference, because it's so good. Um, and it works really well, and fits the tone of the story. You know, I'm going to say, gosh, I almost, I no, I am. I really enjoyed this issue, like a lot. So I'm going to give Wolverine, number 14, six out of six claws. I mean, I thought it was fantastic. Um, I, 
I really enjoyed Blackmore as an adversary. Um, I like the idea of kind of continuing to mine for different cool characters from Arako or Arako. I'm still not sure how I'm supposed to say that. But, um, you know, I, I think, you know, Bleeding Acid is not entirely original, but then, I don't know, just combining that with the character and the pyre, and he's very, like, boisterous, like, oh, oh, little man amuses me, which I didn't really get into that as much, but his characterization is cool, you know, as well, and so, yeah, I just, I really enjoyed this issue, and have no problem saying that this book is kind of back to what I've been enjoying most about this book, um, you know, other than the last couple issues, so, yeah, back to form from Wolverine number 14. So Wolverine is also in Shang-Chi number three. Um, this one's originally titled Shang-Chi versus the Marvel Universe. I think... Well, okay. Maybe that was just on the title of number one. Because it's still on the title page. It says Shang-Chi, but then it says Shang-Chi versus the Marvel Universe part three. Um, anyway, uh, this is written by Jean Lun Yang. Art by Dai Ruan, or DK Ruan, I'm not sure. Colors by Triona Farrell. Letters by VCs Travis Lanham, and the cover is by Lionel Francis Yu and Sonny Go. Uh, just a quick kind of catch up. Um, so, Shang Chi is kind of inadvertently taking control of his father's family. Uh, his father used to be probably inappropriately named Fu Manchu back in the 70s. I think they've, they've changed his name since then. But I've read more 70s Shang Chi stuff than I have modern stuff, so I'm still trying to remember what the, <laughs> the new name is. Um, but yeah, uh, so my history with Shang-Chi. Um, never really read much of anything of his at all. Um, as part of my just kind of 60s through 70s reading project, I of course have picked up on The Deadly Hands of Kung Fu and uh, the other one that is escaping me right at the moment. He's got, he kind of had two books he bounced around in in the 70s during kind of the, the Kung Fu heyday. And they were really good, whether they were just pure martial arts or whether where some of the series went almost in a Kung Fu meets James Bond direction. They, for the most part, have been fairly great in the 70s stuff. So it made me interested in the current series. So I got, when this volume started, I got it. And I also got the, the previous five-issue volume right before this that was the same writer. And... I've just enjoyed the heck out of it. Um, you know, and I, there was some stuff that we got to read where uh, Hickman and his Avenger stuff, uh, he and Spencer did some Shang-Chi shenanigans, and they seemed pretty good. Um, but this series is really... This series and the one before it have been fantastic. But anyway, part of what he's done is he's taken over kind of inadvertently his father's empire. He's trying to turn it into a force of good. But... You know, his brothers and sisters, who are also kind of... Uh, there's, like, different clans for different weapons, and so they kind of are heads of these clans. Under Shang-Chi is kind of the one, the fist that holds the fingers or whatever. Um, and they're, you know, obviously encouraging him to continue to, you know, have illicit business and be ruler of the world in the shadows or whatever, and, and Shang-Chi is having none of it. He's trying to legitimize kind of the influence he has. But anyway, we're going to catch up to that. So on the cover by Lino Francis Yu and Sunny Go, we have kind of a reverse of that old, famous 
Incredible Hulk cover, which has been homaged several times. Because in that one, remember, you have Wolverine in the growling face, and he's got his claws up in front of his face. And in each of the three claws in the reflection, you can see the Hulk running at him. And it's, it's a great cover by Todd McFarlane that's been copied oh, probably dozens of times, right, in one way or another. Including Todd McFarlane again later when he did that run of Spawn covers that were homaging some of his other classic covers that he had done before. Um, and, and others as well, but definitely a lot of his own um, that he kind of redrew as Spawn. Uh, there's one where a guy has like three knives and you can see Spawn reflected in the knives. Um, it's pretty cool. This one is kind of the opposite of that. So we have Shang-Chi with his forearm in front of his grimacing face and then you see from the arena perspective six claws coming at Shang-Chi. But then he has like a metal wristband, and in the wristband you see Wolverine's face reflected as he's lunging forward with his claws. So, I love this cover. It's pretty good. And maybe, uh, we may have two covers on this episode that are nominees for Best Cover uh, for the Wolverine Award. This one's, this one's really good. Alright, so we start off in Ireland. And these, this couple is on a lake tour, and they're looking for a Loch Ness-type monster, and they find it, and it looks amazing. Uh, the color work helps, like the purple sky and the green of the monster. And it's really, really cool, but there's a witch of the lake, and she plays her magic flute, and energy beams come from the sound, and they restrain the monster. And the couple, of course, pick out their iPhone and try to take a picture, and the tour guy grabs it from the guy, throws it, smashes it, and throws it in the water. And I, we must be respectful of the Witch of the Lake. No one can know about her that she really exists. And the guy's like, what the hell, man? And then we see that the girl had her phone less obvious. Like, the guy stood up and I had his phone out. I was like, click, 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 click. So the girl also takes the pictures but was unnoticed and, and hides her phone in her life jacket. And so we know that's going to be trouble. Then we go back to Chinatown in New York, and Shang-Chi's kind of talking with his brothers, and one of the advisors comes in and says, hey, we found one of your sisters. She's at a lake in Ireland. She's been spotted. Uh, someone discovered her on social media. And Shang-Chi's like, okay, well, I guess we got to go talk to her. And the advisor's like, you got to go get her. Like, her, your father banished her. She was a traitor. She needs to be punished. And Shang-Chi's like, no, no, I'm just going to go see what's going on. So they take a little fighter plane and they go to Ireland and there's a bunch of people protesting now that they know she's real. Like, get the witch out of here. <laughs> you know, kind of like the, the Salem witch trials, right? Um, they're all like, the lake, the, the lake witch must go. And so they land and they're looking around and I guess so what, what happened, what I forgot, is probably pretty important. Uh, the advisor had, so when shang Chi's dad had originally fought her and, and banished her, he had broken off a piece of the flute and had kept it. And so the advisor gave it to shang Chi's um, one of his brothers. And they don't have a page with all the heads and the names. Um, I don't remember the guy's name. It's like not Thunderfist, but something kind of like that. And um, anyway, he has a piece of the flute, and it starts to glow, and then it shoots out of his hands and reconnects to the rest of the flute. 
Oh, Brother Saber is his name. Sorry. And Zalon is the uh, the flute lady. And so she's like, well, I don't know what y'all are doing here, but she plays her flute and energy bands come out and wrap them up like ropes. And um, she's like, I came here to get away from our father and his business. I just want to be left alone. And then we see a shadowy figure in the background. Um, but the his little sister, Aiko, who has knives uh, and daggers, is able to th- get an arm, a hand loose and a dagger and throws it and hits the uh, Zilon in the hand. And she drops it. And they Brother Saber moves in for the kill. But out of the shadows pops Wolverine and he pops his claws and he stops the sword with his claws. And a nice full-page splash. It looks really nice and a big clang. And he's like, Zalon, I'm Wolverine. He's like, how do you know me? <laughs> and he says, a furry know-it-all friend found you. And then uh, Aiko jumps in and kicks him. And uh, Wolverine's like, y'all really want to do this? And Shang-Chi punches him and says, stop. And Wolverine's like, I heard rumors about you. That you caught up with your old man's crew. I was hoping they were false, but I guess they're not. And we can get a snipped. And he goes after Shang-Chi, and Shang-Chi's like, wait a second, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, and like, Wolverine's like, who are you with? The Friends of Humanity, Zeno, the Sapien League? And he's like, none? This is a family matter. Um, then Aiko says something that kind of rude. She says, just like you people, butting into our business. And Shang-Chi, it's actually kind of cool, shuts her down. He's like, no, no, none of this is you people talk. That's not cool. And he kicks Wolverine, and... Um, but Wolverine says, no, it's okay. My people are exactly why I'm here. And she's like, what? And Wolverine's like, your sister, she's a mutant. And everyone just kind of stops and freezes. They're like, huh? And um, Wolverine's like, well, what do you think these people are protesting for? It's not just magic and touristy stuff. She's a mutant. And Zalon even looks surprised. And she's like, I didn't know. Um... And Wolverine, of course, extends the offer to come to Krakoa and to get away from her siblings who are fighting. And they're like, well, Shang-Chi's like, we didn't want to fight. Um, but, but then uh, Brother Saber and Aiko were like, no, we actually kind of do want to fight. We're going to take her down. And Wolverine's like, no, you're not. And then Brother Saber punches him out of the way. Of course, he runs back in and Shang-Chi stops him. And it's, it's interesting. There's a cool scene where Brother Saber and Wolverine are lung- lunging at each other, and Shang-Chi jumps in the middle, and we see kind of everyone kind of lunging together. So we have Wolverine has his hands out with his claws, and then one set of claws is Brother Saber's sword, and the other set is Aiko's dagger, and then Shang-Chi just kind of grabbing it all like in a big hug, and he kicks everyone apart, and accidentally kicks uh, Wolverine too far. He starts to fall off a cliff, but Shang-Chi saves him. And Zalon's just watching all of this with her. She's just standing there with her flute, just kind of checking it out. And she starts to walk off, and and Cheng Chi runs after her. Uh, he gets fluted and wrapped up for his trouble. And she goes, um, "If you truly are my brother, let me ask you something. Just now, you saved an enemy of our family. I hear my father's voice all the time, and I want to quiet it." And Cheng Chi's like, "I hear it too. I can use a like-minded partner." The Five Weapons Society can use a new sister staff. And she says, basically says no. She thanks Shang-Chi and she thanks Wolverine for his offer and for 
you know, wanting to let her come to Krakoa, but she eventually says, I don't want any of this. And Wolverine's like, fine. And Shang-Chi's like, fine. And they all kind of go their separate ways. Um, and then later we see uh, Zulan sweeping in her, wherever she lives, on, but she has a mat on the floor she's sweeping, and someone sneaks in, and a shadowy figure says, I have a proposal for you. Which, you know, bodes well for the rest of this series. The Wolverine won't probably be in anymore. But anyway, maybe a little bit of a forced appearance. But it's still a really fun appearance. The art's great. The writing's good. The series has been awesome. Um, and I, I would give this... It's just really fun. I'm kind of... I'm wafting between a five and six claws. I think I really enjoyed it enough and the art was good enough. I'm going to give Shang-Chi number three, six out of six claws. And Wolverine's great in it, right? I mean, he's rough and tumble, he's aggressive, but also compassionate, and really is there for a purpose, to protect another mutant from harm, um, and to try to bring them to Kakoa, but doesn't force her to come, right? We've seen some of the X-Men be a little more coercive. Wolverine's a little more kind of realistic and natural about it. He's like, hey, I want you to come, you're welcome, but... If you want to stay here, just know that if you need me, call me. I got your back. And that's just cool. I, just, I, I like that Wolverine characterization as a uh, Crook Cohen recruiter, uh, not the hard sell. <laughs> but willing to fight for her, you know, if, if need be, and does. So, yeah, really cool, really great Wolverine appearance in a great series that I've been really enjoying. So, yeah. That's Shang-Chi. So next, we'll move to X-Force number 22. This is kind of the continuation of that manslaughter story. And it's Invasive Species, or Cemetery Flowers, written by Benjamin Percy, art by Robert Gill, colors by Guru FX, VCs Joe Caramagna does the letters, Tom Mueller does the design, uh, Joshua Kassara and Dean White do the cover. And the cover is pretty busy, um, it's Manslaughter, Clinton Choir, Forge, Domino, and Wolverine fighting off monstrous plant people. Um, it's fine. You know, I, I had talked about how Kassar's art took a big kind of change for me with some better coloring and some cleaner design work. This is kind of back to some less clear coloring. <laughs> Everything's kind of muddy and muted. So it's, it's good art, but it's an okay cover. It's a, I mean, honestly, it's like a big blob, to be honest. I'm sorry if that is offensive <laughs> to the artist. But like, if I had just seen this on the, on the stand, I, if I wasn't looking for it, which I was, you know, thanks to the internet, we know what's coming out, right? <laughs> you go to the comic shop with a list of things you're going to get instead of just perusing. Um, and I, I like to peruse some, but, but mostly I stick to my list. Um... But had I been a kid and just walking around looking for covers that look cool, I don't think I would have noticed this one at all. Like, it just is very hard to tell what's going on. All the colors kind of bleed together. The action kind of bleeds together. I've been really high on Joshua Kassara. This is not my favorite cover of his. So remember we had the manslaughter creature and there's been some, some other, like, I guess attacks or incidents with plant people, and so X-Force is trying to figure it out, and they take Manslaughter back to Krakoa. Then we meet this guy, Dr. Bloodroot. Now, they talk about him kind of having inventing the Man-Thing serum. I don't... I was trying to remember, and I didn't have time to go look in the original Man-Thing story if this guy was there, but he's definitely 
the creator of this manslaughter guy. Um, but anyway, he's at is actually a pretty touching scene at his wife's gravestone, and he talks about how cemetery flowers are depressing, or flowers just in general, because as soon as you cut them, they're they start dying. They're on their way to decay, and so he says instead of bringing flowers to her grave, he brings seeds. And you know, says some some new some real flowers will grow from your memory. It's a very touching scene. But then he's approached by the peacock guy from Zeno, and we basically find out that Doctor Bloodroot's wife was sick, got Krakoan medicine, and was healed, but got addicted to the Krakoan medicine. Like you know, we hear in the news, people getting addicted to painkillers. Um, Kind of the same thing. And so the peacock guy says, you know, I've been working actively against mutants and Krakoa. I don't like what they're trying to do. This is just through medicine, economics, everything. They're, they're trying to get us dependent on them. And we don't want to be subservient to them. So I'm fighting back. And, you know, I, I'm sure you're familiar with all the levels of grief, all the stages. Why don't I help you skip right to anger? And he gets him in the car and drives off with a plan. Then Beast and Sage are figuring out that all these attacks or incidents where people kind of vegged out and turned into violent plant people, they can trace it back to an incident that started it. There was a waiter dumped some stuff in the guy's food. Uh, the, the detective was hit by plant spores. Uh, the patrol, uh, the officer on patrol was shot with a bullet of plant stuff. And so they figure all that out, and they go to Manslaughter, and Beast has a theory. And he cuts off Manslaughter's fingers, and Manslaughter's like, Hey! And he's going to hit Beast, and Beast's like, Hold on. And then the fingers might get oozy, but they turn into little people, like little tiny plant people. And it's actually kind of cute. Like, they crawl around on Beast and, like, play with his ears and stuff, and, and Beast is like, My theory is correct. So maybe you're not controlling all these plants, but if someone took anything from you, or they made a new version, anyone that spores or reproduces more plants can't control them. And Manasaur's like, yeah, I can, I can control these guys if I want to. And so he's like, okay, well, that's what's going on. Someone is is using plant stuff to uh, uh, control other people and, and do bad stuff. And I can't really tell if the game, if the end game is to make it look like Krakoa or like the Terra Verde guys. There's too many plant stories going on to kind of <laughs> keep it all straight. But, um, Anyway, we go to New Orleans, and it's Jackson Square, and there's a gate, and we have the Order of the X, and there's some disciples there praying, waiting. And the idea, remember, is they just want to see mutants or offer their body to mutants to see if they can have a mutant baby. And this guy's like, how about you be my disciples? How about you worship me? And it's Dr. Bloodroot, and he's turned himself into a man plant. And he has a giant flower that comes out of his belly button, and all these weeds come out and, and basically convert the Order of the X disciples to plant people. And he says, you can go through the gate. And so he does something where he manipulates the gate with his vegetation and allows them to go through. And then Beast takes uh, Wolverine and Domino to a field and says, y'all are field agents, here's a field. And Wolverine's like, shut up. <laughs> but they take Manslaughter to Krakoa, and Manslaughter talks to the, the, the main trunk of Krakoa, right? Remember the big trunk with the face? Um... It's kind of the main embodiment of Krakoa. And Manswater talks to him, and he's able to see through all through the eyes of all the plants in the world. And can kind of think, they're trying to figure out what the root of this new 
plant plague is. Meanwhile, in the order of the X, plant people are wreaking havoc on Krakoa. One of them attacks Blob, which is actually kind of made with that. Because um, Blob's immovable, right? The only time the X would ever beat them is they can cut the ground out from under them or whatever. This person takes a vine and picks Blob up, which is annoying. And I know, I think he has to like, be prepared or set himself or whatever to be stuck. Because that's how he can walk around. But, I don't know. I, just, I don't like the fact... This, I think they play it for a funny gag, and it's not consistent with the blob. But, anyway, there's a group of mutant kids on the beach, and they get attacked. And then, um, they're able to find that Dr. Bloodroot is the source of all these things we've seen. So, I'm guessing maybe even the stuff they did before was from his body... So there may be some timey-wimey stuff going on here in the storytelling. But anyway, Manslaughter, Domino, and Wolverine find him. Of course, he plants up, and then he pulls his wife out of the grave. Like, she's a plant person, or is being orchestrated or manipulated by plants. And so she walks around, and then the fight ensues with a snick, and we fight uh, the plant guy and Wolverine's like, we got you outnumbered. He's like, ha ha ha. And all these plant zombies climb out of the cemetery. Um, and basically just dead people reanimated by plant parts. Uh, so Domino has a little Krakoan arm that shoots fire. She's doing that. Wolverine's cut through them. Um, then Sage is like, uh, hold on, hold on. I need you guys to come home. The, the plant people are attacking Krakoa. Wolverine's like, oh crap. And so he's like, we gotta wrap this up, guys. We gotta get back. And then uh, Manswatter reabsorbs Bloodroot's wife, which pisses him off and makes him angry. But then, um, man, as Manswatter kills Dr. Bloodroot, all the plant leaves him, he turns into a skeleton, and then all the Order of the X people that he was controlling collapse. And I can't tell if they die or not. Like, it looks like, like plants fall off of them as they collapse, but it's hard to tell exactly what happened. Anyway, they... They're safe this time. <laughs> and then uh, Wolverine takes Manslaughter back to Washington State. He goes off into the forest. Wolverine's like, hey, you know where to find me? And Manslaughter's like, hey, you know where to find me? Like, this isn't going to be, I'm not going to live with you guys. Hey, I'll, I'll help out if you need me. So, cool. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, the art's pretty good. The story was a pretty good conclusion to this. Um, it wasn't crazy about it all along, but I think it's a pretty pretty solid chapter. Um, I'll give this a pretty solid 4 out of 6 claws for X-Force 22. Alright, so Wolverine and Gabby are both also in Deadpool, Black, White, and Blood number 1. So that's what we'll talk about next. And there's several stories here. We have Red All Over by Tom Taylor, Phil Noto, and VCs Joe Sabino. We have Hotline to Heaven by Ed Brisson, Walsh Portacio, Rochelle Rosenberg, and Joe Sabino. And then we have Born in the U.S. Zor, S-U-S-R, by James Stokoe, who does everything. Now, the cover is Adam Hubert and Frank Martin, and it has Deadpool cutting through ninjas, and his swords are making a thwip sound, and Deadpool's like, thwip? <laughs> like, that's not mine. Um, it's a fine cover. It's pretty cool. Alright, so our Tom Taylor story, which I was really excited about because, um, you know, the story he used with Gabby and Wolverine, where they saved the animals in All-New Wolverine, was a highlight, um, was a great issue. 
and the friendship between Gabby and Deadpool was pretty great. So I was excited to see this. Um, basically, we have Spider-Man and MJ sitting on the couch. Wade Wilson calls, and MJ's like, send us to voicemail. Then we have Wolverine on a motorcycle, and Deadpool calls and starts talking. He's like, how do you get this number? Um, yeah, <laughs> it's a really funny line where he says... Um, it's a shame they couldn't bond some manners to your bones in the adamantium. And um, Wolverine throws the phone down. And then Deadpool calls Gabby and Jonathan, and they agreed to help. And Deadpool is at Palm Live Industries, and he's fought some zombie animals. And um, there's a fun thing where he says a Marvel teaching moment, and it says... Um, if you see intestines in the outside of a person, the content's not for you, kitties. So anyway, Gabby comes and helps, comes to the lab. They fight some zombie animals. They see a zombie zebra. And they, you know, they have some fun with it. It's like, it's a zombiebra. The galloping dead, Gabby says, which is pretty fun. Um, and then they chase it down. They save it, or try to save a guy on the street who's in his headphones and his phone. And like, oh, hey, a zebra. And he gets blorched by the zebra, trampled to death. And then we get a double snick as Gabby and Deadpool attack the zebra. And the zebra falls on top of Deadpool. And um, he says, you know, just some light puncturing. Um, it looks like the zebra bit, Wolver or bit Deadpool's hand, so Gabby cuts it off. <laughs> she's like, Deadpool's like, what the hell? And she's like, zombie virus. And he's like, oh, yeah. So there's some more fun moments and they kind of banter back and forth. Um, you know, Gabby talks about how she doesn't like seeing the innocent suffer remade into a weapon. Can we do anything? And Deadpool's like, yeah. So they go to the Palm Ive office with the CEO and he's <laughs> in his office. He has cages of zebras, which is funny. Um, so they talk to him. They ask him to stop. He says no. Um, Gabby frees the zebras and Deadpool's like, all right, you can go on home. Take the zebras home. And Gabby's like, what are you going to do? He's like, I'm going to talk to this guy and convince him not to experiment on animals anymore. So, of course, as soon as Gabby leaves, the guy pulls a gun. And Deadpool's like, uh, you know I'm going to convince you? I say the nay! And stabs him with a sword, and that's the end. It's a fun story. The art's great. I mean, it's so no to. Come on. Tom Taylor still has a brand of sweetness and humor that works. Um... So the rest of the stories, it was fun seeing Wasp Portatio do Deadpool. Um, I'm not sure if I've ever seen that. And it works, especially with the white, black, and red hints. And then there's a, an Omega Red story. Um, and those are both fine. They have moments of humor, moments of kind of being dumb. Um, I mean, the, the Tom Taylor story was short, and you don't really... It was really more for laughs than any of the kind of emotional connection between Gabby and Deadpool that we've seen before. Uh, nothing is not there. There's just no time really to explore it in this kind of story. But it was still fun. Um, it was the, definitely the best of the three. I would give Deadpool, Black, White, and Blood um, three out of six claws. All right, so last up for Grant, and Grant only probably... <laughs> Just kidding, if anyone else likes this. Uh, we're going to catch up on Gambit's Gumbo and Excalibur number 22. So, on Otherworld, uh, Excalibur is in with Beast, and he's trying to take some samples. And then remember that Sheriff um, 
was it Whitechapel, maybe? Anyway, they don't like the witch breed being another world. They really don't like them taking their valuable minerals. And so she shoots and they confront them. Uh, Gambit is able to um, basically catch the bullet. Like, it looks like it's shooting in his eye and he grabs it, um, empowers it, and shoots it down. And the sheriff's like, I'll be damned. Um, so they approach and we find out the beast isn't actually taking anything. He's using a, a machine to do samples. And she's like, okay, well, that's fine with me, but other people may not be so forgiven. So you might want to get out of here. And then we see Pete Wisdom resurrected by Megan. Um, and basically that there's no more gates to UK, so we can't get back home. And he's very upset about that. Then we go to the Starlight Citadel with Captain Britain and Saturnine. And um, Merlin hems and haws about what he wants to do and doesn't trust Saturnine and the other people in the council are like, hmm. And they kind of argue about stuff, but then um, they dismiss it. Uh, Saturnine and Captain Britain start to maybe mend the relationship a little bit. And of course we have the lighthouses now on Braddock Isle. They Richter helped it like cut off from the coast so Excalibur can keep the watchtower on their own island. And Pete Wisdom's just hanging out on the island staring wistfully at the British coast. <laughs> so then we go back to uh, Excalibur decides to rescue uh, Merlin's slaves. We get a cool thing where Gambit, I guess, lifted some tarot cards from Saturnine or from the Citadel. And so when he charges them, he can, like, make them do their powers. So he pulls out a card for luck, charges it, and throws it at the door, and it opens the door. <laughs> so that, that's kind of cool. Kind of a cool use of his powers and com combining that with um, the, the uh, tarot cards. And then Merlin comes in and is like, you think I don't know what's going on? I know what's going on. And they fight a little bit. Um, Richter's able to open up the ground so they can escape into a tunnel. And they find a train that looks an awful lot like the train from the Cross Time Capers. Uh, there's a cool thing when Gambit actually like powers the train with his energy and says, the Gambit Express don't run on nothing but Gambit, which is a cool line. Um, and he, he shoots the train off. Then Pete Wisdom uh, res decides to resurrect Strike, which I'm not familiar with Strike. I don't know. Maybe that's... Uh, we're at the point now in my 90s read-through where everything I'm reading in Scalver is brand new, so maybe it's after that, or maybe it's part of the, the thing that they just did. I don't remember them saying the word Strike, though. I don't recognize his character. Well, actually, I didn't recognize Tom Lennox, so maybe. Anyway, we find out that Merlin comes back and says, oh, they... They're trying to free everyone, but they miss the most important thing, hiding in plain sight. And in a cage, he has King Arthur. So, oh, credits. Duh. So this book is No Peace or Treasures of Britain, written by Teeny Howard, art by Marcus Toe, colors by Eric Arseniega, letters by Ariana Meher from VC. Tom Mueller does the design. Mahmoud Azrar and Matthew Wilson do the cover. The cover is Captain Britain and some stockades. And then there's a little pig guy with a book and Merlin. And then hanging on the wall are Jubilee, Megan, Gambit, and Richter. 
It was a fine cover. The art in the issue is really good. Still, I still like Toe and what he's doing. There's some interesting parts. Um, even though they're going kind of back to the Merlin magic story, that's probably my least favorite part of this book. Um, there's still some interesting stuff, and Gambit really gets to shine, like using the tarot cards and then powering up the train with the Gambit Express, which runs on nothing but Gambit. is a brilliant line. I really love that line. Um, there's, I mean, there's some fun moments, and it still seems to be a little more kind of the story feels like it's actually like moving. Um, it looks still a little more focused for this book, which is good. Um, huh. Trying to decide if I want to give this 3 out of 6 claws or 4 out of 6. I think I'm going to go 3 out of 6. I'm still not crazy about the Merlin stuff, but, but it's not bad. Like, it's, just, it's a good book. It's fine. Um, alright. So that's going to do it. That's it. That's the episode. So, hope you enjoyed it. Um, as far as what's coming up next. Uh, you know, I got a little behind over the first, kind of the middle of the summer, getting ready for school to start, and getting the boys ready and all that stuff and, and I'm having to go back to the office a little bit um, it kind of got me a little behind but um, I'm hoping to catch up over the next week or so so you may see a flurry of episodes and then hopefully pretty soon um, I will get out the ninth anniversary special which will have several lovely guests as we talk through the 90s event Fatal Attraction the one with the holograms on the cover so that should be really fun and really awesome. I do have a couple other flashback things I need to get out before that because there's something very significant that happens to Wolverine that is very obvious. <laughs> you know, I, I, I pretty much go by the complete Marvel reading order. But there are times where you can move some stuff around a little bit and it doesn't really matter that much. There's something that happens to Wolverine. I won't spoil it now, though I'm sure everybody knows. In Fatal Attractions, that's very much a line in demarcation. And however you want to kind of say, well, the story could go here, it could go there. There's a point of this, there's a story point in Fatal Attractions that everything that came out around, either right before or some, some things that actually came out right after, but they have to take place before because stuff based on Wolverine's appearance and how he uses his powers have to be either before or after Fatal Attractions. Right? There's no choice of where to put it. <laughs> so that make, I'm sure that makes sense. I know why I'm being so cryptic about it. It's a, it's a really old story. and But I'm really excited about what it revealed at the time that it came out. And I don't know. I just want, I want to kind of treat it like it's special. So I'm going to. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So all that's coming up real soon. Um, the flashbacks in between now and then that I need to get out are two um, miniseries. The Gambit miniseries and the Sabretooth miniseries. So I'll be working on getting those wrapped up um, and out. So they may come out bang bang, but then we'll get ready for that ninth. I can't believe nine years um, I'm doing this podcast. But um, yeah, that's going to be exciting. So uh, please, everyone, I know there's a whole lot of stuff going on with the Delta variant and different entities making vastly different decisions. Um, you know, please stay well, stay safe, stay kind, please. I'm begging you guys, as listeners of this show, just be, be good to each other. Um, yeah, and I just hope everyone stays well, more than anything else. I just hope all you guys are okay. And so, until next time, that's going to do it. So, 
hugs and snicks, everyone. Bye-bye. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Uh, plugs. Have to do my plugs. Uh, for the podcast and Go Snick, you can like the Facebook page. Twitter is at Snickcast. And, of course, show notes and the podcast itself. In addition to all the fine podcasting places you can find the podcast, uh, you can also do it on snickcast.podbean.com. So now, until next time, hugs and snicks, everyone. Bye-bye. And snacked.